Sports Comic News, episode 104. I'm one of your hosts, Chris, alongside Mike. The Mike. <laughs> I get it, like microphone or something? Yeah, that's all I got. That's all I got. Nice. Uh, welcome to the show today. We do have an interview with uh, Tom McWeenie. And if you're thinking, is this? Yes, it is. The Tom McWeenie who's done um, Image, Dark Horse, uh, DC, Marvel, lots of different stuff. He is an artist, um, inker, and he's doing um, the art for a book uh, we'll be talking about a little later. Yeah. Strap in, because he can talk, and it's awesome. Yeah, I can sit there and listen to this guy. for <laughs> like. I, I wish like about halfway through the interview while we're sitting there listening to all his stories, I was kind of like... Um, Man, we should have told him ahead of time this is going to be like part one of four or something so we could just get it all. <laughs> we could get everything on the show, so we'll have to have him back for sure. Um, and with that, we're going to jump right into the news because um, you really don't care how Chris and I are doing. So, uh, TV news. <laughs> I'm not caught up on The Flash. Um, I know that it's back on TV. Are you caught up on it? Didn't even realize it was back until the other day. Yeah, so that's a negative. Um, I'm almost done with The Punisher. The Punisher's been really good. But now I've, I've slowed down on everything because uh, this Friday, this weekend, Kingdom uh, was released on Netflix, which is a six-episode um, first season. I'm on episode five as we speak. It is a, uh, it is a, it's a story about, um, like, this this dynasty in China that uh, it's it's olden times, but it's also like a, a zombie story as well. So it's kind of political that the um, everyone thinks the the king is either alive or dead, the current king, and they they kind of to prolong his life, they turn him into a zombie. And so technically, I guess he's still alive. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but there's along with that, there's a lot of repercussions that are trickling through the land. So there's a it's like a, a zombie story but it also mixed with like um, the politics of, okay, he has a, the current King has a firstborn son, but um, uh, the King also is going to have a son with another wife. So he's, he might be more of an heir to the throne. So there's all this like political dealings going on um, as well as it's a zombie story. And the zombies are really interesting. It's a, it's a new take on the whole, the lore of it. Um, I don't, I don't want to get in. I'm not going to spoil too much about the show. But uh, the zombies do only come out at night, which is pretty cool. It creates this really creepy thing uh, that happens during the day is like you'll be walking through an area and the zombies avoid light. So before they basically, you know, die for the, the daylight part of the, you know, the day, um, they'll go like bury themselves like under rocks and like under homes and stuff like away from the sunlight. So you'll just see a bunch of like bodies crammed in like crawl spaces and like when it hits nighttime, they come back to life and it's, it's really creepy. It's, uh, I mean, I love this stuff. I love, um, I love the, the old school sword fighting and all that is I just eat all that up. Um, it's really good. That's intense. Yeah. You're going to love it. It's like, you cannot wait to watch. I can tell. I, I've watched one episode of Punisher. I really enjoyed the one episode, yep. but I've gotten really into the show called the Bundy tapes. Oh, I saw that as well. Netflix just killing it, man. Yeah, and it's all just, it's half telling the story of Ted Bundy and half about these reporters who went and met with Ted and 
basically what happened there was somebody got him to start talking about the murders and it's so part of it is him just discussing about this these murders in the third person it's chilling and insane and it's exactly the type of so creepy very creepy yeah i don't even know if i could watch it just because of how, like people that don't i mean we're not a murder podcast there are a lot of them out there <laughs> um but i mean ted one of the creepy things about ted bundy is like he, he sometimes serial killers look crazy this guy just he was just a normal dude and he was like i'm pretty sure he was running for like political office or was about to run for like mayor of the town because everybody liked this dude <laughs> you know what i mean that was the scary part about him there's, I'll tell one quick story, but there's a... Uh, so he was working in politics at the time. Yep. He actually, right before starting his spree, worked with uh, this town in Washington on their uh, uh, rape and murder investigations. Wow. And how they function, how to make them function better. So he learned a lot about how things worked in the area. And that's why for the first like chunk of his quote-unquote career... They all take place in that area, and you'll see he goes to different counties because he knows that none of them talk to each other, so they can't really connect dots. Holy crap. It's, it's fucking insane. That is scary. Highly recommend it if you like that kind of stuff. All right, and if you don't want to sleep at night. Um, TV news. Okay, so we got a first look at John Cryer as Lex Luthor. I know we brought this up before. Uh, hey, he looks like Lex Luthor, and it looks like he's keeping the facial hair, um, which is... Looks like Looks like bald John Cryer. Yeah, looks like a bald John Cryer. Um, we got an Umbrella Academy trailer. Uh, we all know Netflix picked up um, Gerard Way from The Used. He wrote a comic called, very, very popular comic called Umbrella Academy. Um, Netflix picked it up, released the trailer, and it looks really fun. I cannot wait for this show. I'm going to watch it. Yeah, I was very critical of uh, the book for the longest time mm -hmm. reading it. Yeah. And then I read it and realized how great it was. Um that being said, I really look forward to the show because it looks a lot like the comic yep. in a live-action sense. Obviously, there's some things that aren't shown that I don't know if they're going to do or not, but I saw a Talking Monkey swim in. Yeah, I'm going to watch it. It, was like, it wasn't just Talking Monkey. It was like, here's a casual Talking Monkey, and it's like, I don't know, this the, the, the casualness of it was just kind of like, wow. Oh, all right. They're just doing it. Okay. I've never read it, but now it, it really makes me want to read Umbrella Academy. Um, I highly recommend it. We got a new trailer from The Boys uh, coming this summer to Amazon Prime. One of the reasons I'm still purchasing Amazon Prime. Um, but this trailer is a little different. I mean, we're getting some different characters. I don't know if they've changed actors, but uh, I'm really excited because Carl Urban is in this trailer. And... We all know how much how big of a nerd Carl Urban is. I mean, this guy, he was Judge Dredd. Uh, he's part of the uh, the Enterprise flight crew. I mean, he was Bones. And uh, now he's part of the boys. So this guy definitely, he's got his pop culture, pop culture at least in the comic books, that's locked down. Um, I mean, it's, it's it looks great. Uh, the show, it's copy-paste, the costumes, um, and all the messed up, parts of that book to come along with it it seems like yeah and it really shows the tone of the show too like it's very hardcore and brutal yeah a lot of blood and fight and cursing and that's exactly what the boys is yeah uh movie news so black panther received seven oscar nominations including best picture 
and man, was the internet pissed. <laughs> um, I did actually see this uh, this week when they announced the nominations. Uh, a lot of, I mean, I, I mean, let's be real here. A lot of Marvel fans will agree that Black Panther um, was probably not the best picture this year. Uh, and also a lot of fans will agree the viewership will go up at the Oscars <laughs> if you nominate it for seven different nominations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you, I mean, do you think this is just a grab for more viewers at the Oscars? I think it is. Uh, I'm not going to be watching the Oscars either way, but I, I think it's, I, I think it's politically motivated. Oh, uh, for sure. Far into that. Yeah. Um, this is the first uh, superhero movie to be nominated since Dark Knight. Right. And, and that's a big deal. Uh, and it's the first Marvel movie to be nominated. Now, is it the best Marvel movie? No. Is it Was it the best Marvel movie last year? In my opinion, no. It's still a really good movie. And I'm just glad to see something that I actually watched in the Best, best Picture nomination. <laughs> it's so true, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, there, there's motivations there that I may or may not agree with, but at the end of the day, it's it's nice to see that they're actually reaching towards movies that we watch and not just kind of these Oscar bait movies that right. some of them I do enjoy, I'm not going to lie, right. but it, it's tough when you, you constantly put those up for an award and you don't put the ones that people actually watch. Yeah. Um I agree. Spider-Verse is nominated for Best Animated Feature. That's one I agree with because that's what I hear from everyone everywhere is that movie is amazing. Yeah, I'm still really mad I haven't seen it. Me too. I'm, I'm glad to see it get the praise. So. Um, Reborn is being made by Netflix with Chris McKay to direct it and Sandra Bullock to produce. Um, we've been seeing her... <laughs> you know, there was all that stuff about Bird Box being like splattered all over the internet of like this is I've never seen so much marketing for a movie um, and, and now we got Sandra Bullock uh, producing potentially starring in this so I wonder if she's got something going on where she's got a deal with Netflix um, I wouldn't be surprised uh, yeah and I don't know if Sandra Bullock's getting a lot of calls from Hollywood. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, she was uh, she was pretty good in, in Bird Box. But yeah, so we know Reborn is a thing. It's going to be happening. Um, this is just the classic case of, uh, you know, Mark Miller writes something, it becomes a movie or slash TV script because it's conveniently segmented into six issues and everybody wins. Well, well with Millar's deal with Netflix, it was bound to happen. Yep. And, and that's part of the reason that Capullo went over and did this with him because he knew that he would make a shitload of money. It's so funny because I actually I saw Greg Capullo um, on Batman Day in Schenectady. I talked about this Schenectady, New York, near Albany, um, and this is before Reborn came out. And I I think I asked him the question, "What do you think you're going to be doing next?" And he said, "Well, I got a he's like I might I got a potential thing I could do with Mark Miller. I might just do it because." everything he writes turns into a, a TV show or movie and I can make more money that way. <laughs> and I was like, Hey man, you're, you're actually right. And here he is. I mean, Capullo did the art and he's definitely going to get some royalties from this show. Um, so good on him. I'm not, I'm not taking away from the work either. That book was amazing. No. Oh no. Was yeah. It was, the art was amazing. But yeah. Um, I just hope that 
Sandra Bullock doesn't star in this because I don't think she fits the lead character. Definitely not. The lead character is younger than Sandra Bullock. Not even that. I just I don't see Sandra Bullock as a character. I mean, yeah, actor, so changed character, but she could, I just don't see her as that person. I could see her playing the mom or like either the mom or the older version that's like in the hospital, you know. Possibly. Like the actual, the real world version. But I hope it's done right because this yeah. is a really great story. I really love this book. Yeah. Um, and with that being said, we're going to move on to our fantastic interview with Tom McQueenie, and we'll see you guys on the other side. Hey guys, Chris here, interrupting the show real quick. Remember, if you want to show your support for Force Comic News, head on down to patreon.com slash Force Comic News, where just a dollar a month gets you. Uh, access to our Slack channel where we can talk comics all day and all night and uh, exclusive Patreon podcast that we're uh, uploading very soon. A uh, series of games that we play with all the great guests we have here on Force Comic News. You're going to get one of those every month and just a just dollar a month gets it for you. So remember, that's the best way to show your support there and to help a growing community and to be a part of it with us. So everybody, thanks for your support. And on with the show. And welcome back, everybody. I'd like to introduce a very special guest, well, the artist behind Atomic Frenchie, Mr. Tom McWeeny. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hi. Glad to be here. Hey, Tom. Thanks for being on the show. Um, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about Atomic Frenchie in a second because it just looks absolutely crazy. But uh, so you're the artist for it. And what got you into wanting to do a comic. Have you always been a fan of comics? Um, yeah, I mean, I am the I am the little kid that, who, you know, the kid who wanted to grow up to be a fireman. Uh, the time I could hold a pencil, I wanted to draw, and I not only wanted to draw, I wanted to draw. I wanted to be a cartoonist, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I, my, my older brother draws, so when we were kids, I would watch him draw, and as a result, he, you know, he was always buying, like, you know, you know Mad Magazine and... Yep. You know, uh, he would buy these like Dennis, these Dennis the Menace sort of trade paperback books, and I loved them. I would just pour over them. And um, and then one year, one year, this woman across the street, her son was going away to college, and he was a comic collector. And she came over to my mother with a box of comics and said, "You know, you have four boys here. I'm sure they'll want these." Mm -hmm. And um, in this box was basically like 30, 35 sort of early 60s DC comics and I don't know if you guys are familiar with like what early DC the comics were like but it was you know it was like Superman on a street corner like <laughs> holding a cup begging for money you know <laughs> or, or Batman as an Indian chief you know yeah, uh -huh. fighting mm -hmm. a giant gorilla you know they were really really silly you know Mort Weisinger written books and in this box among all these comics was one Marvel comic it was a Tales to Astonish 86. And so I'm going through these books, and it was just so strikingly different to uh -huh. my, whatever, six-year-old mind. And I crack it open, and it, there was a Hulk story in there. And I was just like, it was just nothing like anything I had seen before. The, the opening splash page was, you know, Bruce Banner on a missile flying over <laughs> uh, Times Square, right? So yeah. my, and, my, and my dad, my dad worked in New York, you know, so uh -huh. it's like, 
I was like, wait, this isn't, you know, Gotham City. This isn't yeah. Metropolis. This is this is a real place. And it looked like John Buscemi's <laughs> it looked like a real city, you know? Like wow. I, and so I was just it literally totally changed. You know, I, I, I often think if that single book hadn't been in that box, would I have been sort of drawn into comics the way I, I was? I don't think I would have because, you know, here was this, you know, this superhero who had no costume. He had no gadgets. He was just green. And, you know, his, his weapons were his fist and his rage. And it was like, uh, as a kid, that just so appealed to me, especially, especially as the youngest of four boys. That oh, really, okay, that yeah. really appealed to me. Yeah. You know, because, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah, so that was that was where that was where my love of comics are. But I was already into the. I would read the comic strips in the newspaper. Uh, I would read anything that had any sort of fun drawings involved with it. Uh, you know, but that was sort of my trip. And then and then within a year of getting that box of comics, a kid moved in across the street from me. Who again? Thank sort of like the, the the weird sort of perfect storm of things happening, and he was a massive comic head. And not only that, but he was um, his his parents kind of spoiled him. So he he I I had to sort of nickel and dime and get whatever I could get. But whatever I didn't get, he would get. So I could go over to his house, <laughs> and he had all, he had like complete runs of Spider Man, and I had never seen Spider Man before. And you know. He exposed me to Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and Iron Man. He was also a big Marvel head too. I mean, he, he bought DC, but but you know we were both sort of on the same page. And Marvel was doing the cooler stuff back in whatever this was, 72, 73, and uh, and that was it. And that was you know we would sit there and sketch out of the comics. We would draw out of them. And, um, now I was I, I wasn't looking back from that point. That's that that I think um, it was probably the best origin and love for comics story that we've heard on here because that was like we've never gotten one so vivid of where it was like you you knew this the first splash page you opened to that like changed your life and um we always talk we talk about the the marvel the early marvel characters how much heart they had and and how relative relative it was to people in everyday life because i mean it like spider-man swinging through new york city you know he's in downtown manhattan it's a little more real Absolutely, and not only that, but it's again, it, it, you know, people, people who didn't see the early the '60s DC stuff. I, I had literally one in one hand and one in the other. I had gone through this box and looked through most of these books. So to have this one in there, and it was just one. There was no other Marvel books in that entire box, and wow. to just sort of open it up, and they had this great Gene Colan cover. Of this, you know, it was because it was it was Tales to Astonish. So the book was split between the Hulk story and a Samaritan story, and the Samaritan was like this wave washing over New York City, and it was just like again, as opposed to you know, Batman painted like a zebra. You know, it was like the, the <laughs> contrast was just so like, you know. And I was and I was a fan of the Batman TV show, and I was a, I really loved the Superman TV show, the, the George Reeve one. At that point, I was yeah. watching it every day. But then to see this, this character who wore nothing but ripped purple pants, it was it was. People don't understand like like they're so used to the sort of the Hulk now. They they have no sort of context of him appearing on scene with a bunch of like square jawed, good looking guys hanging around, you know, uh, with their capes, you know, fighting goofy villains. And now all of a sudden it was something completely different. It totally appealed to me too. I was a big fan of like monster movies. So, you know, watch all the Universal movies and especially like anything with a giant monster. So the Hulk really, really fit into that 
sort of niche of my brain. I was like, wait a minute, he's kind of like a monster, but you know, he's not. So I always say, I was, so people always say, what got you into comics? And I always say, the Hulk got me into comics, without That's question. Awesome. Without question. That is awesome. And um, I mean, so where, for you, when, when was your first moment of like, okay, now I'm drawing in the comic book industry, like this is, this is what I'm doing now? You mean like my first sort of realization of like a professional moment? Yeah, yeah. yeah like well, I, well, I went to I went to the Kubert School after mm-hmm. high school. I went mm-hmm. I went there with my brother, who also I told you also draws. Yeah, and, and uh, I really really loved it. Uh, a lot of you know some artists have gone there, and, and but I I always say that I definitely would not have been a professional without those three years of training. Um, and after I graduated, while I was there, actually my third year, I uh, they 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 start sort of getting you ready to go out into the real world, get a portfolio together and whatnot. And I was always very realistic about my talent level. Uh, some some guys aren't. Like, I, I meet, meet artists, and they'll show me stuff, the, the portfolio reviews at cons and stuff. And, and you can get that vibe of, like, this guy really doesn't quite get how far he has still to go. Or, or I've seen the other case, too, where guys have shown me work. And I'm like, dude, take this to an editor now and mm-hmm. go get some work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready. So, you know, you get, but I think I've always been very realistic. So in third year at the Cuban school, there was another guy in my class, this guy, Rich Hedden. And Rich was a really good, like, he, he, he was just a fountain of ideas. Rich could write and plot far better than I could. So we, I said, let's, let's kind of pool our talents and we'll get a better chance to get work. Mm-hmm. So we did. We, we, we uh, started working on some ideas together. And again, People don't realize how different things were in 1986. We graduated the, the school that summer. We went up to a con in New York, and this was in the days where you could literally walk up to a table, find the editor of a, some book you knew, and put your work right in front of them right then and there. You didn't have to wait on any lines. You, there was no <laughs> schedule. And so yeah. that's what we did. We just – and we – there could be no better time to have been coming out of the Kubert School than 1986. Because yeah. it was the summer of Watchmen, the summer oh, of Dark yeah. Knight. Yeah. And not only that, but two some two years ago or a year and a half ago, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles hit. So the black and white boom was underway. And so yeah. there were these little comic companies willing to take a chance on anybody who had any kind of a decent idea. And we understood we were not going to work for Marvel. We were not going to work for DC. So that's what we did. We pitched an idea to this comic company in California called Blackthorn called Roachmill. He liked it and we did it for, we did it for them for a year. Um, and after not getting paid and fighting with them over money <laughs> and everything, I said, look, we're only, you know, we're going to take this somewhere else. And so we moved it over to Dark Horse and that was a much better fit. The people at Dark Horse were great. And uh, we did it there for a while. And so that was probably it. Well, working on the cover of Roachmill number one would probably be the moment where I had that like, oh my God, I'm actually probably maybe going to get published you know so awesome yeah it was it was a great time people again uh you know it, it's such a different situation now like uh, i feel i feel kind of a little bit bad for you know young artists these days it's much much harder. it was a, such a small industry mm-hmm. back in the mid 80s it really was and it was an intimacy about it like i remember i remember the first time i ever met john remitted jr i literally he was just sitting at a table yeah, and I just like walked over to him and said, "Hey, you know, a big fan." Shook his hands like, "Would you look at my work?" I'm like, sure. Bring it around. Show me your work. 
You know, it was that easy. Wow, that is um, so awesome. Yeah, Tom DeFalco, same thing. He was yep. he was the, he was the editor in chief at Marvel Comics, and he came down to this little podunk comic store by where I live, and did a signing for whatever book he was working on at the time, and also review portfolios. And I'm sitting there going, that would never happen today. No way. Nope. <laughs> so I, I I feel lucky in that regard, and that it, it was much easier to um, get people to just look at your work and talk to you. And, interact with them so so fast forwarding a bit uh at what point do you end up working at image comics so i um worked at dark horse we worked at dark horse for uh, about four years weren't really making a lot of money book wasn't really selling that well i was doing doing you know okay and uh we picked up some teenage mutant ninja turtle work through a friend of mine also a cubert school uh colleague and suddenly, for the first time, we actually made some decent money. And uh, it really, again, really sort of eye-opening. It's like you can make a living at this. The, the turtles mm-hmm. were paying you know, really good rates. Every issue made royalties. And um, so um, after we did some turtle work, uh, we were looking for sort of our next gig. And I was at a comic convention in New York and was talking to, I believe it was Evan Dorkin of all people. Hmm. And he said to me, I told him I was, you know, looking for looking for work. We're deciding what we're going to do next. He said to me, "You should call up DC. They're looking for people to work on Loba, right?" So this, <laughs> was when, this was when DC finally finally realized that they had a hot character in Lobo after the character had been red hot for two years, right? And you know, just dragging <laughs> right. their feet, just dragging their feet. You know, Marvel would have had Lobo in his own book in. Two weeks after he got hot, but, you know, DC it's like this slow-moving ship. Yeah. Um, so finally, they realized, hey, we should probably give Lobo his own book, and they were looking for people to work on it. And uh, so we contacted DC, and as it turned out, they weren't interested in us working on Lobo, but they had an opening on the Demon. So we worked on the Demon for a year. Nice. Was was rough. It was rough. It was rough what? on on Rich, my partner. It was a little bit more than he could bear, and eventually, after. The demon was up. My editor said, "Look, we're interested in you inking, uh, but we're not interested in your your friend penciling." So I inked a few books for for about six months. And my editor on the I inked a book called Damage. And my editor on that book was a guy named Bill Kaplan. And Bill, one day I'm just sitting there inking some pages, and Bill calls me up and he says to me, "They're gonna offer you a contract probably in the next week or two. Don't sign." And I was like, "Oh." Okay, and he, <laughs> said, and he said, I've been in negotiations with Jim Lee to be editor-in-chief of Wildstorm, and I want you to be working there. I don't want you to be working for DC. Awesome. So, but, but so cool. It, it sounds cool, but at the same time, it's like I was nervous because it's like, yeah. uh, getting offered a contract at DC is still a pretty cool <laughs> right, thing to do, right? right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, so, so I just said, look, I said to myself, I said, look, if they offer the contract, I'm just going to stall. Right, like so, if they call me up and say, "Hey, we want to give you a contract." I'm gonna go, "Oh, sure, great." And then if when it arrives in the mail, I'm just not gonna send it back until I hear from Bill. So, long story short, Bill does get the editor in chief job, and then uh, he has me and my wife fly out to San Diego, basically to woo us. And that took all of ten minutes because San Diego is beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and the, the studio was kind of half built at the time, and even then, you could sort of see the promise of it. And uh, so I wound up – what's interesting though, 
So I go out there for this sort of wooing thing. And then the very last night, I was supposed to sit down with Bill and Jim Lee and so, and go, you know, sure, Mr. Lee, this is great. You know, I really want to work here a while. So I'm, I mean, I, everything's, you know. So, but I was a little older than most of the people he was luring out there. He was luring out like eight, you know, 19, 20, 21. I was 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I had just moved into an apartment together, you know, planning to get married. So I was still kind of on the fence about whether to actually go the 3,000 miles to California and work in the studio. So uh, after kind of, I, so I was probably, I said, I always say I was probably the only person that turned Jim down with his initial offer. <laughs> and it wasn't because I wanted more money. It wasn't yeah. anything like that. It was just like the timing wasn't quite right. So about six months later, they, they contacted me again and went, we really want you out here. Uh, so what can we do? And they they paid for the most of my move. They paid for awesome. My, yeah. So wow, that's, that's so I cool. Them. I had it, it, but the, the the real story though is when I was out there for that initial visit was, and they didn't tell me this was that it was also a tryout, right? So mm. I go out there, yeah, and I'm thinking, all right, I get there, and they do, then they finally get out there, and they tell me it's going to be there's going to be a tryout. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I'm walking around the studio and I'm looking at like, you know, Scott Clark's pencils and I'm looking at, you know, uh, Jeff Campbell's pencils. I'm like, all right, I, you know, these are fine. You know, yeah, I can do any of these. And then they go, come here, here's what you're going to ink. And they drop this eight page Travis Charis story on me. And I don't know if you've ever seen Travis's pencils, especially around that time period. No. But they were gorgeous. I had never seen anything remotely like that. Wow. And as a matter of fact, the guy who handed them to me, the editor ran them and he said, yeah, you know, if we could figure out a way to just reproduce these, we would. But you're going to have to ink them. And so it, it, was a, <laughs> it, it was really a sort of like throw, throw me in at the deep end. Right. Kind of thing. And, I, and I had just started, I'm not, no exaggeration, I had just started inking with a nib which was a pen tip versus a brush. I was a brush anchor for a long time. Yep. And I had just started probably about two months before getting this job dropped on me. And uh, I'm not going to say it didn't scare the bejesus out of me, because it <laughs> did. Um, but I just sort of took a deep breath, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to work on these pages as slow as I can until I feel like I start to understand them. And that's what I did. I just picked a spot about the size of a postcard, and I said, I'm just going to ink that part as best I can. And once well, I did, I was like, all right, I think, I, you know. But it was, it was really trial by fire. Even, even after I was done inking the story, they were joking about how nobody else in the studio wanted to take those pages, including Scott Williams. And uh, so, you know, it was a very, very sort of like gut wrenching kind of moment. <laughs> so as a as an inker of these stories, I, how much, how much are you involved in the actual story itself, and like talking with the writer, or artist, or any of the other team? Um, not at all. Hmm. Um, you know, and what, and it also, you know, inking varies from pencil to pencil. Like, you know, when I ink those Travis pages, I, you know, Kevin Smith made the joke in the movie about being a tracer. I, I right. did literally, I did literally <laughs> trace. Yeah. And, but I had no – there was no shame in that in me. Um, the p- pencils were gorgeous. My complete philosophy going into those pages was 
don't screw them up, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. and there were plenty of guys I think that are like that. Jeff Campbell's pencils were super tight, mm -hmm. like he just he just wanted to make his pencils mistake proof, and that's fine. But that made them really unfun <laughs> to aim. No, it, it did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I loved Campbell's work. I really did. He was one. Of, he was one of my favorite artists at Wildstorm. I liked him as a person. He, he, we had a lot in common. We were the, the only two guys at the studio that actually liked sort of animated cartoons. And mm -hmm. He was a big Mort Drucker fan from Mad Magazine. We would talk about, we had a lot of stuff like that we would talk about, but I did not enjoy inking his, his pencils. As a matter of fact, there are very few guys whose pencils I really loved inking. Um, the one guy who I really loved inking was Joe Madeira. And it was because Joe didn't pencil like Campbell and Travis. They were tight, but they were not carved in stone. There was always a little room. Uh, there was always this sort of like nice, semi-loose quality to the way he put pencil down. That I said, you know what? This is this is this is what I want to be inking because it's not, you know, I'm not basically a slave to the pencils at that point. But at the same time, there was there was a sort of quality of them that you know I did everything possible to try to maintain. That's a that's an interesting look at it. Um, just thinking that yeah, the the sharper the lines and stuff like that, that you don't get so much room to play with and do your artistic approach to it too, right? I mean, you get less room to, right. to make and it I'm, your own. I, I'm not I'm not gonna lie too. Um, I never really try. I, I wasn't one of these inkers that always tried to put my stamp on everything. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't. I, when I was at DC, here's a funny story, or not a funny story, interesting story. You know, DC, the, the rule of thumb in their mid-early 90s was that DC was two years behind Marvel. And it was mm -hmm. true. They always were <laughs> about about two years. I mean, I, I had an editor at DC himself tell me this, that exact phrase, that they were always about two years behind Marvel. So Marvel has that period where, you know, Jim Lee's working for them, and Eric Larson, and Mark Silvestri, and the whole image the pre-image group of guys, and now DC is playing catch-up with those guys. Mm -hmm. So they all leave and they form image, and I get my first sort of inking work off outside. You know, I, the demon ends, and I go on to my first gig, and the editor hands me these pages, and the first thing he says to me is, can you make them look like the image guys, right? So... <laughs> um, I was like, I could try, you know, and I'm, you know, it's my first big job for DC but in hindsight I felt really bad for those jobs because I kind of ran roughshod over some of these pedicles. I did stuff that I would never have done five years later mm -hmm. you know I would have just said to the guy look if you want this to make it look like image have the penciler make it look like image because I'm not gonna but I did simply because that's what the editor you know demanded of me um and now that was a real sort of extreme case, but I I did I put a lot of stuff into those pages more so than than I would ever have done later on, um, but you know inking is a mechanical task. I mean I'm mm. not I'm not saying that that it doesn't take some drawing skill because it does, but I I always looked at it as just a step in production. I really did, and I know <laughs> a lot of inkers get really mad when they hear people <laughs> say that, but it it put it this way. Um, I could talk on the phone and ink at the same time. You, you, I couldn't do that when I was penciling. Hmm. When I was drawing, you can't, you can't do that. You, you, you can click off your brain when you're inking, 
mm-hmm. and just let the hand go, and you, it will look exactly the same as if I sat there. <laughs> it, you, I could show you pages that I inked, and you'd never know that I was holding down a conversation while I was inking them, because it is. It it, be, it becomes a sort of like a muscle reflex. Uh, yeah. Scott Williams used to use the term muscle memory all the time, and yep. it's true. And so I could, you know, but you can't do that when you're drawing something. You have to think about it. You have to think about like the pose and the camera angle and everything and the light, you know, whatever. So, you know, uh, inking was something I did to work in comics, but it was never something that I love, except for Battle Chasers. Like I said, Battle Chasers was every time I got a page from Joe, I'd look at it and go, "Man, this is going to be." This That's is, awesome. This is going to be great, and you know, so that was that was fun. So let's uh, let's talk Atomic Frenchie. Sure. Yeah. Um, so do you want to give us the the quick the quick plot synopsis um, and how yeah. the how the project got started or something? Well, the like project that? got started via Facebook actually. Um, okay. Tom Snagoski, who's the writer, very talented writer, he contacted me. He, he saw a piece of artwork that I posted. I had done a sort of goofy take on Lockjaw from the Fantastic Four. Yep. And so he reached out to me and uh, he said, "I have this idea for a book. You know, would you?" be interested. His timing couldn't have been better. I was in a little bit of a dry spell. I was actually doing a lot of toy design at that time for like Mattel and Fisher Price and huh. that kind of kind of comes and goes. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, he caught me at a good time. So I, he sends me the proposal and I read it and I tell him this all the time and I I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. And I know <laughs> I'm like the, I should be saying this because <laughs> my book, but yeah. bear with me. Yeah. Um, he sent it to me like on a Thursday, but I, I, I'm always one of those people that like do not respond right away. Mm-hmm. Read, some, read something a second or third time, think about it, mull it over. And uh, what drew me is on the second reading of the proposal was in the back of the proposal, he had the, the storylines that he wanted for book two and three in, those, uh, in the proposal. And in those plot outlines, he had introduced this new these new characters mm-hmm. and those were interesting to me the secondary characters became mm-hmm. interesting to me so i just sent them a quick email and i said to him you know i'm i'm somewhat interested but i i just said i asked them two simple questions i said um one are you just looking for somebody to draw whatever you write down and follow you sort of verbatim you know were you looking for a collaborator and he wrote no i'm looking for somebody to sort of collaborate I said, great, because I have a lot of ideas for this. And then I asked him how he saw the entire series ending. I said, in a dream world, if you get to do the entire Atomic Frenchie story beginning to end, how do you see what, – what do you see as the ending? And I had mm-hmm. a very clear idea of how it should end in my mind. And Tom wrote sort of almost exactly what I was thinking. So I was like, okay, so cool. on the same page. So yeah, so Tom has been incredibly generous with – my input on this thing it really is a lot of the ideas are uh, a combination of things where like tom will write something and i'll just say you know that's great but wouldn't it be better or let, let, let's push it like this or uh you know i introduce a lot of the sort of supporting characters in book one um so it's been a very collaborative back and forth on, on this whole thing and as a matter of fact with book two which comes out in may um uh, Tom really let me go because I had a very clear idea of what book two should be like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he was very, very generous. I said, can I take the first stab at the outline on this first, you know, as opposed to him sending me an outline, you know, us kind of going back and forth on it. And, cool. uh, but the, but the whole premise is it's based on Tom's actual real dog. 
Oh, uh, <laughs> that's yes, awesome. Yes, which which when I read the proposal again, that's that's funny. When it when I read the proposal and he said it was based on his real dog, uh, my first thought was, oh, this is just a guy's vanity project. You know, this is like, <laughs> oh, I love yeah. my dog and I'm going to make right. a comic about him. Right. Uh-huh. Everyone else will love it too because yeah. it's my dog. You it's know? my dog. Yeah. Right, exactly. So <laughs> yep. I thought, oh my God, I'm getting wrapped up in this guy's vanity project. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> but, um, but no, so um, it's a, he, he, you know, uh, he just said, he goes, you know, I have a French bulldog and I don't know if you've ever been near one, but they are just the biggest jerks on the planet so uh so his the idea was to do a, a basically a story about a french bulldog that um is uh, the, the word we always used to describe him is he's essentially lex luther he's mm-hmm. he's a dog that it wants to he feels it's his birthright to take over the world it's not that he just wants to he just feels that it's his destiny to take over the world that's awesome yes and uh so um we have Ideas for as, up, up to six books at this point. We've done the first two. Uh, we're waiting to get the book for this point. Oh, uh, Tom, one second. You got to fix your mic really quick. Yep, sure. Is that better? Yep. Thanks. Yep. So, yeah. So, um, so, yeah. So, the book is, is, is this, this sort of Kirby's Rise to Power. That's the name of the book. <laughs> awesome. And that's actually Tom. So. Very cool. And uh, the first the first volume is available uh, on Amazon, right? Yes, it's called Atomic Frenchie Sit Stay Rule. It's it's a all ages book. Um, as a matter of fact, we've gotten just as much good response and, and, and things from adults who have read it versus you know kids, their nieces and their nephews, and whoever they bought it for. Um, the response has been actually very good so far. And, cool. Uh, That's awesome. You know, and if people who like book one, if they like it, book one, they're going to love book two because it's just really sort of not. Well, now that all the sort of groundwork has been laid, we could just we just jump right in with book two. That's awesome. Are are you guys self publishing this, or is this going through a publisher? No, no, it's going through Insight Comics. Um, Insight, who does you know, they're mostly known for all their sort of big coffee table books. They're yep. part of Harry Potter kind of things. Well, uh, two years ago. They decided to store, you know, they, they need, they decided that they needed sort of a property stone or things to, to invest in. And so they started a, a comic line and a young reader's line. And our book kind of falls right on the cusp of both. Mm-hmm. It's um, kind of in between. Yeah, it's a novel that has comic sections in it versus yep. it's not a full graphic novel. I keep always tell people that when they, right. at, when they ask about it. It's not a full. That, that was Tom's idea when he approached me with it. He said, look, I'm, I want to do something a little different. He goes, you're a comic book artist. I write novels. I want to do something in between. And that appealed to me on a lot of levels. The main one being was that then I didn't have to draw 125 pages. Because <laughs> you know, that never yeah, happened. That that was, right, I'd still right. be working on book one if that right. was the case. You know, I figured we, you know, we figured we divide it into about – the first book has about roughly – I think it's about 43 pages of comic in it. And then, of course, like I think 15 or so spot illustrations. Mm-hmm. The second book, which is a little longer, has like f- 52 pages of comic and I think 12 spot illustrations. So, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, but it's, but it, I think it's like 30 pages longer, book two or something like that. So, wow. um, but yeah, I, I liked that idea. I liked, you know, the idea of just Tom's thinking was, and I agree, I totally agreed with this, which was he goes, you know, sometimes you're reading a book and you come across a scene. And you just look at it and go, 
this scene should be drawn. It should be, right. yeah. it should be comic pages, not, you know, he goes, as a writer, he goes, I understand that sometimes I have to sort of describe it. He goes, but it would be so much cooler to just have it drawn. And, and in book one, book one, it was much more clear cut. Like we knew pretty much right away, okay, this is going to be a comic section. This is going to be a comic section. And then mm-hmm. I would add stuff in. Like I'd go like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if, you know, when we do this flashback scene, if we just draw it and we do it like an old videotape, like like an old videotape that somebody, oh yeah, that's great. So we would we you know would sort of play with that. Book two was much harder to determine like what comic book sections because the story is uh, it's a road trip story and it it's very much almost like it's a mad 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 world. Like it just starts and it just goes. Huh. Like I could have literally picked any scene after like page twenty and drawn it. And it would have That's been awesome. Good. Yeah. So it was. It was like, all right, I gotta pick what to draw here. You know. So. Uh, Very cool. Yeah. So volume two, you said, is out in springtime. May May seventh, I believe, is the date. Um, awesome. So will it be in this upcoming previews? It very well might. Uh, Insight doesn't really keep us privy to that stuff unless we ask about it, and we're just, okay. you know, we. Uh, uh, Tom. Tom usually asks sometime you know so i may find out this week if it is or not um but um yeah so and again we're hoping for a book three and uh you know see what see what happens well tom for anyone out there who hasn't heard of you or atomic frenchie what's the best place for them to pick up atomic frenchie and what's the best place to follow you along this journey uh well the best place to pick it up would be either barnes and noble or or Amazon, those two. You can order it through uh, Insights uh, web, you know, their web page. They carry it. Or, mm-hmm. or if you ever, if you're at a comic convention and Insight has a booth, um, they were at the New York Comic Con. They had plenty of uh, Atomic Frenchies there. Um, you can follow me on Facebook or on Instagram. Both of them under my name, Tom McGuini. Um I don't do Twitter yet, but uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I have, see, I have, a, I have another proposal out right now. Yeah. My, my agent that I can't really talk about that I'm really excited about and uh, I think if if that gets picked up by somebody else, you know I probably should venture into Twitter the Twitterverse well we'll definitely yeah. have you back on the show if that's the case too yeah, you know, yeah I think you uh, can't you can't lead us on like that and not expect us no, to talk not, not, not only do I have that being shopped but I'm actually this one I can't talk about because it's not in front of anybody yet but I'm actually working on a uh, it's a bit of a Hail Mary pass with mm-hmm. what we were talking about earlier with trying to get work through major comic companies these days. But I'm actually working on a, a pitch to do to bring back Gen 13 as a, as a sort of young reader's book. Wow. Uh, I know DC now has a young reader's line. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, huge sort of Hail Mary pass. Um, but I figured it's worth a shot. I love those characters. Um, they were my favorite characters while working at Wild Sunday. I always thought that that, that was their best book. And... That- uh, so I thought, you know, this would be the time to kind of bring them back in almost like in sort of like a Teen Titans Go kind of thing. Maybe not quite that goofy, but in that sort of vein. Um, and so I'm working on a pitch for that right now that I'm hoping to get in front of the right people at DC. Fingers crossed. You know? That's awesome. Good luck you with know, that. You never know. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah. Well, Tom, thanks for being on. We got to have you on again because I think we only had about a quarter of your career. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you, and, I, and I gladly talk about other things besides my career. You know, <laughs> I'll just nerd out with every, with anybody. 
Awesome. Definitely. Yeah, and we're definitely having you back on. Very cool. So yeah, thanks again, man. And uh Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we're back. Hey, wow. Man, so many great stories. Cannot wait to have this guy back on the show, that's for sure. Yeah, I the the passion and the discussion and or the the way he talks was just so fantastic. Like, yeah. He needs to get out there more and talk. He about should him. he should have a podcast because it just naturally comes to him, you know. I want more competition. <laughs> Never mind. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So now we're just going to get right into the comic book news. Um, this Boy, howdy, is there some comic book news? Yeah, there's quite a bit. Uh, this, is, this is actually pretty interesting. Uh, Xena, the warrior princess, is coming in April to Dynamite, uh, which this is actually pretty cool. I might even try the first issue of this. I just I used to watch that show growing up. That and, and Hercules, man. You know, those are like back-to-back, the Tales of Hercules. I, I used to watch Hercules, I'm not going to lie, because my dad used to watch it. Yeah. Um, Xena as well. Uh, I have no interest in this book, though. <laughs> I'm glad it's being made, because somebody... Like, those those shows live way beyond the airing of the actual shows. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, how simple a premise the, can do that. So I'm glad somebody's uh, gonna enjoy this. Yeah. The uh, the fact that they're, I mean, they're still being talked about today is like, you don't see that TV like they don't take a chance like that on TV. You just won't. They're not just like, hey, we got a show coming to CBS about, uh, you know, a warrior woman who wears leather and she's gonna kick ass at eight yeah. eight o'clock on Tuesday nights. It's like. So, Everything's a sitcom. <laughs> so how long until that version of Hercules comes to comics? What's the overall? Oh, man. If they haven't done it already, I, I want to say it's already been done before. But if not, I would say, um, I don't know, a few months after this releases. So probably summertime. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to give it about six months. Yeah. But hey, there's I mean, there's a reason this book got made. There's a fan base for everything. Um, and my, I might actually pick this up just for, I'm just, I just want to know, like, <laughs> where has she been? You know, um, Ahoy Comics, been up to. <laughs> uh, Ahoy Comics is, uh, doing a book called Bronze Age Boogie, um, announced by Stuart Moore and Alberto Ponticelli, um, Planet of the Nerds, sounds like a fun book by, uh, Paul Constant and Alan Robinson. I, I might actually, uh. Might actually check that one out. Um, hashtag Danger by Tom Pear and Chris Giarusso. Chris Giarusso. Man, giving me all the tough names today. Um, did we? Did Tom talk about that on the show? I can't remember. No. No, this is one of his new things he's got coming out. Um, it might just be me, but I don't know if I read books with hashtag in the title. But. That's just that might just be a personal preference. Um, we get a steel cage one shot with stories from Mark Wade, uh, Lana Suvani, Tom Pear, Alan Robinson, Stuart Moore, Peter Gross. Little uh, little combination one shot there. Bunch of different stories. Um, yeah. So Mark Wade doing some stuff over there at Ahoy. Bronze Age Buggy didn't really appeal to me that much. Um, but Planet of the Nerds, I want to pick up because it's it's um 
solicited as a Revenge of the Nerd style story. Yep. Sold. So I'm down. Sold. And then, yeah, the other two, uh, I wasn't too hot on, but picking up uh, Mark Wade to write a story, even if it's just one story in a collection, right. is a big deal. Um, I mean, this is a Hoy's kind of second season of books, and I think they they got some winners in here again, so congrats to them. Yeah, that's um, that's pretty cool they picked him up for it. So we got some Marvel stuff. Uh the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge announced to come in April by Ethan Sachs and Will Sliney. Uh, it's based on the new park at Disneyland. Uh, <laughs> so is the story, is the park going to be based off the story or are they writing a story about a theme park is my question. So the park is based on a section of the Star Wars universe, which I'm going to look up as I vamp. Okay. And it is, uh, the story is going to be basically kind of discussing that as we go along. Hmm. So, yeah, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge upcoming Star Wars theme area being developed in Disneyland Park at California. So this is, a, like, this is basically they're making Galaxy's Edge like a section of the Star Wars Galaxy. Huh. And this book is going to explain kind of the lore of that section. So... Um, as a Star Wars sucker, I will buy this book. Um, but it is it is really funny that it's a book or it's a okay, it's a theme park based on a movie, and the book is based on a theme park. So it's a comic book based on a theme park based on a movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I'm sure yeah. I'm, I'm sure Disney knows what they're doing. They're probably going to make money off of it either way. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's probably a big arrow going to, like, a money sign. Um, Boom Comics, Rocco's Modern Afterlife, coming in April. That's pretty cool. By Anthony Birch and Mattia De Mio. I'm super excited for this. Rocco versus Zombies. Come on. Who doesn't want to see that? Combine two things I love so much. (laughs) Zombies and Rocco's Afterlife. Yeah. I'm so down for this. I mean, come on. Um, Bendis teaches... uh, Bendis teases a future DC event called Leviathan. Um, and we we already got to... I mean, the we saw the villain behind it, Leviathan, um, in Action Comics, right? So, yeah. So, Leviathan popped up in Action Comics. And uh, do we know where Leviathan originally came from? Uh, no. Do, do, do. Metropolis, Bat- you mean? In the Batman, Incorp- Batman Incorporated was the first time we saw that. Oh, okay. You mean the Grant Morrison so, run? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, I said it, I think, late last year where I said I think Bendis is ramping up to something big mm-hmm. in terms of a DC event, mm-hmm. and uh, here it is. Yeah. Leviathan. I think all this Superman stuff is going to culminate into a DC, or in a DC-wide event book, so mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we got a little glimpse of that of how like they Leviathan's been living under Metropolis for centuries. Yeah, Corvals esque. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to lead to like there's been societies living underground everywhere. It'll be interesting. Yeah, cool. Um, so I had quite a few books to read. I was actually really excited for this week. I had some, um, I had some cool books. I read a new book. Read some old books. Read some new books. Um, let me talk about the the new one that I read this week. Uh, 
It is an image book called Oliver. Ooh. Oh, I didn't pick that up. You didn't pick it up. I actually, yeah, I actually read it because uh, I knew you were going to read it. I remember when we talked about this. Um, it's interesting. The art is the art's really good. Like, I'm just trying to find the. It's well, the writer's Gary Witta, but the uh, the art is Derek Robertson, and um, yeah, I mean it's the it's the story of uh, Oliver Twist, but like it's not. <laughs> Um, I mean that so far, I mean, his, his name is the same and I'm sure there's going to be like the same overall plot style, but, uh, it's just a great first issue, um, post-apocalyptic world. Basically the, the world has been fighting with, um, with soldiers that they've been growing, uh, almost like clones. So they all look the same, uh, but they're trained to fight They're resistant to gases and everything. So basically all this fighting is happening with these clones. The world gets nuked. And the only people that are left that can breathe the air because of the nukes and everything are these super soldiers that are just left over and there's nobody to fight anymore. Um, that intertwined with a, a plot of this boy, Oliver, who shows up. Um, don't want to give too much away, but it's, it's a really solid first issue. Um, it's the art. It's really good. You get a really cool story and some plot development. And I, I highly recommend this image book. I'm going to pick that up tonight. I'm a huge Gary Witta fan. so Yeah, it's really good. Um, okay, so I read Batman 63. Uh, still not... I'm still not loving this... Uh, this whole dream sequence stuff they're doing. Um, it's just really exhausting to, to read all this dialogue and then to find out that it's... <laughs> it's just a dream sequence, like... It's just, I don't know, it's all kind of silly to me when, when writers do this whole thing. And to see Tom King doing it, it's just like, I feel like he's just biding his time. Like, he announced that he's doing 100 Batman issues, and honestly, these last few issues have just felt like filler. Like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have announced. <laughs> I shouldn't have said this. <laughs> well, that and there's, like, a crossover coming up where he's not going to be a part of the book anymore. Right, exactly. Until the crossover's over, obviously, but, yeah, yeah so. Yeah, and, I mean, it's mostly Constantine following him, following Batman around, like, in his head, and Batman realizing that um, he's going through some type of torture. Uh, he's being tortured in, in a nightmare, that he, and Constantine is telling him all this, that, like, you know, he's being fed... Um, uh, scarecrow gas and all this stuff, but we've yet to see anything happening in the real world. I think with the last two issues, um, yeah, freedom. I said it once. I said it a thousand times. Yeah, any good writer can make something great, but that plot device is one of the lamest plot devices. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, uh, just it's all a dream. Yeah. Like, it, yeah, yeah, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, I will. I will tell you what does work for me. Freedom Fighters freedom number fighters. two, man. Let's talk about Freedom Fighters. So, holy shit, this book. First off, the art, man. The art is so good in this book that, I mean, you you get to see the human bomb punch a giant robot with a Nazi symbol on its chest and, like, dude, this is, this is book of the year right now. I'm just telling you. I am in love with Freedom Fighters. Um... The Human Bond is one of the most underrated yes. and underused characters in the DC. Like, I love that character. 
Um, yeah, this book was fan. Dude, we gotta get we gotta get Venditti back on the show because I just want to like I just want to bow to the man and say this book so good. He it's it's a little different than his run with Green Lantern. His Green Lantern, he was building the story, building the story. This one, he's like, I'm taking these characters and we're starting off with a bang. I'm rebooting everything. Like these are new heroes. This is my town. Yeah, and just the heroes in this, they you know they brought back hope to the Americans. Yeah, and one of the plastic men was like, I, I don't want to give it too much away, but he was hidden somewhere, and his his moment in the book is so great because he just comes out and it's just plastic man is one of the silliest and stupidest. And I mean, in the best way possible characters in DC <laughs> and they be yeah. like afraid of right. plastic man. Really cool. I mean, I mean, you got to read the book, but there's a really, really disturbing scene at the end of it where um, one of the plastic men is on the streets trying to observe how much, how much the free, new freedom fighters have influenced the America into trying to rebel. And he transforms from being a little kid and starts and like snaps a guy's neck. And it's like, it's just really disturbing because he's like elongated the guy's neck and he's like wrapped around him. Like it plastic man is scary. And the suit they gave him is terrifying as well. Um, this, I can't get over this book, man. I'm so excited that this book was on my poll list this week and I completely forgot about it. I'm I'm so happy. I was looking forward to this so much because I when Freedom Fighters popped up in Multiversity, I fell in love immediately, and I went back and read like all of the old Freedom Fighters stuff, and just none of it scratched the itch I wanted because all of it was like the Freedom Fighters come to DC Prime. Yeah, right. No, no, no. I, like the the Freedom Fighters need to stay in Earth X and they need to fight Nazi versions of things like that's what the freedom fighters are to me at least and this book has given it to me and i fucking love it so good um yeah shazam number two what a week for comics shazam number two um they don't touch on any of the stuff with uh the guy who shows up and says that he's billy batson's dad they don't do anything with that um but they go to they go to the fun land that uh the kids that are all still in the they're in the train station for the first issue um they find they find we're Billy got, they find the pillars of all the, the gods where Billy got his powers. Um, they end up at this amusement park where all these children are, and Billy Batson gets greeted by King Kid, ruler of the Funlands. He said he's the missing seventh champion of the, of the family, too. So, uh, man, Jeff Johns, he's, he's getting ready to build a universe here. It's, that's what he's doing. Yeah. He's the, and the B the B plot with Doctor Savannah. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, him having like the little earthworm in his ear and just the creepiness. I, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, so Doctor Savannah is uh, he's he's doing something with magic. He's getting involved with magic, and he has um, he has Maxervermus mind. He has Mister Mind, who is a tiny worm in his ear like it's really disturbing and mr mime like i can't even look at it. i'm looking at the picture right now it's it's friggin' creepy dude like the eyes on this worm thing and he's just like hiding in savannah's ear and like giving him instructions on like the mysteries of magic and it, it was like almost comical at first and then i'm like this is really creepy <laughs> yeah when you first see him you almost laugh yeah it's like this is stupid what is this thing and, and it gives you this 
you open the double page spread yeah the description of who he is and it, oh god it was so fantastic yeah he's like a little worm but he's like the biggest threat in the magical universe or something like that. that's pretty crazy uh yeah so jeff johns i mean dude we knew this book was going to be epic and i'm loving it so far this is good jeff johns right here. the art alone too the art is just man every page is just done so well there's a lot of cool splash pages with like the train and uh when they first discover Funland. It's just, man, uh Marco Marco Santucci Santucci is uh is killing it as well. So great book. I highly recommend it. And then we have Justice League sixteen. <laughs> which all I can say is thank God we're done with that Hawk Thanagar Prime stuff. <laughs> so if you skip to the last couple of pages like Chris and I have been doing in the Justice League story, we actually get to the plot we care about with Starman. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a little more plot development. I'm even more confused now because uh, because of the whole John John's being captured as a child and and something was taken from him with his mind powers and um, essentially. Starman shows up at the end. He kind of fixes everything. Uh, Thanagar Prime goes back to being the shithole that it was, especially in the DC universe. Like, just don't even touch the the Hawk characters at all. Just leave them, please. <laughs> like, they couldn't have made it even more confusing. Like, I think I, I think I can see what Scott Snyder was trying to do here. When when Starman shows up, we we have two Hawk girls standing next to each other. We have Shaira and we have um, Kendra, and. Like, Starman does something, he, like, takes something from Shire and gives it to Kendra, and, like, Shire was like, oh, so you just gave her my soul? And he's like, no, but you have your own soul now. And I'm like, oh, God, this this Hawk person stuff has just got to stop. <laughs> it's like, I, I anyways, um, it's not a bad book, that's for sure, though. I mean, Starman shows up, he talks about how they're going to fix the star, the source wall, and that's the that's the plot we actually care about. Yeah, it's it's still a really good book, but I am I've just been kind of gliding until we get to the next storyline because the next storyline with like the fifth dimension, right? I really want. They want to save the multiverse. Um, I I actually read another book this week, but I left it for Chris to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy number one. Oh fuck yeah! So I know you wanted to. I know you read that. I know you want to talk about. It. I read it too. Um, what a great, what, before you talk about it, what a great way to just boom, first issue, this is the new, like, I remember we both questioned, like, how are these people going to become part of the Guardians of the Galaxy? Like, how is this going to happen? And, dude, Donny Cates pulled it off. Uh, he rebooted the Guardians of the Galaxy. He's got his weird and random team together. Uh, and I'll let Chris talk about the rest. Yeah, th- so they basically are, all these characters are gathered together for the last will and testament of Thanos. Yep. And he informs them that I'm not really dead. I've been able to upload my consciousness into another being. And I'm not going to tell you who it is. So now they're like, everybody's scrambling and going like, who, the, who is it? Who is it? And of course, Gumora is the first one to come up. Like, we, we think it's her. And that's who we, that's who we should go after. Mm-hmm. And this is all because of what happened in Infinity Wars and her getting all the Infinity Stones and all the stuff that happened there. But the big part is, is certain characters get lost in, in this vortex and end up meeting up with Peter Quill, who Peter Quill and Groot have been in their own ship kind of doing their thing, trying to go uh, 
figure something out mm-hmm. when they run into these characters and the Nova Corps appears. It's so much great nerdy Marvel cosmic stuff, and I fucking love it. Yeah, and uh, and basically the the you know the new team we get is uh, Beta Ray Bill, Cosmic Ghost Rider, uh, Moon Dragon. Who is the other one? Uh, well, Groot is still there. Groot. Groot. Uh, Groot can talk now, though. Did, did, uh, that was never addressed for me. Is that just the thing he does now? Like he can speak. So yeah, I'll address that in a second. Um, let me get to the team. Yeah, and then the I forget the other woman's name, and then Peter Quill, and like they just appear, and Peter's just like, oh yeah, this is my new crew. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's how they make it. Yeah. So the group, there's two things here. Groot has like kind of a new look, and he basically looks like an '80s punk rocker. Yep. Which I love since I grew up on '80s punk. Yep. And. Uh, he can talk because of something that happened during Infinity War. Oh, okay. So the, gar- the gardener appeared and basically healed Groot. And when he healed him, Groot was able to talk. And we didn't find out that Groot's an asshole. Yeah, he really is. Like, <laughs> he's just, he's always, when he's talking, he's slamming everybody. So when you hear Rocket's responses in the past, like, it makes Rocket seem much more likable. <laughs> it does. It really does. Because you think Rocket's being a dick, but it's because Groot is being a dick. And then uh, we end up finding out that basically the whole plot is because of a, another cosmic character who I won't spoil. And they're going to try to resurrect Thanos. It, it's awesome. You couldn't have done a better job rebooting one of the top teams at Marvel. And, you know, everybody loves the Guardians and what they've become since the movies. And I, just, I immediately love this team and love this book. Um, Donnie's got another hit in his hands, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, it's so... Pick this book up. It's going to be a book we're going to be talking about at the end of the year, I promise you. Easily. But that's all I had for this week. Uh, and then I just have one more. And I uh, actually picked up Naomi. Oh, I did see that, yeah. By Ben. Yep. So, this was teased as like a big uh, mystery in the DC universe. And basically what happens is, is Superman and uh, Mongol end up fighting and running into the town where this uh, young girl lives and she's running around trying to figure out why it happened here and um, making connections to another time when the superheroes came to town and wondering if there's some sort of connection with it. Long story short, we end up finding out that this girl was orphaned and the day she was actually adopted and brought to the town was the day that the other heroes came. So there's some obviously there's, there's some yeah sweet. and a link to how superman came to be about so uh, i'm intrigued enough where i might pick up the next issue but it's uh it's definitely it's told from the perspective of like a 16 year old girl mm-hmm. so go in with that <laughs> in mind uh because there's a lot of uh high school ish drama ish conversations mm-hmm. And it can be tough, but uh, the mystery alone is enough to get you through, I think. Awesome. So, Mike, this is a long show. Long episode. Yeah, long, great show. Great content for all our adoring fans. Yes. So if people wanted to continue on and follow you on the internet, where is the best place for them? Uh, If they're not sick of us by now, Fortress Ricker on Twitter. Where can they find you, Chris? Well, you can find me at Fortress Chris on Twitter, or you can find the show at SCN underscore official, 
or just go to FortressComicNews.com where everything we do is posted right there for your viewing and listening pleasure. So once again, I appreciate you all for listening. Remember, reviews on iTunes, thumbs up, subscribes on YouTubes, and all that fun stuff. And we'll see you all next week. See ya.